Welcome to the Discipleship Helps Podcast. This podcast is designed to accompany you as you work through the book, Discipleship Helps. This book guides us through foundational doctrine, every discipleship know. From time to time, you'll be able to pause and write your answers to the questions in the workbook. We encourage you to read each scripture and cover this journey in prayer. So without further ado, let's begin. We hope you enjoy Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything that you are doing in our midst. Come on, let's just begin to thank him. Let's just get an attitude of thankfulness. We just love you, Jesus. We love you, Father. We just thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. Lord, we just lift up your name. You are so worthy in this place, Jesus. Lord, we give you all praise, all glory and honor. God, we thank you for this journey that we're on with you. Thank you that you are teaching us, that you're showing us, Lord, what we need to be able to stand on a sure foundation. Lord, we thank you that you are teaching us how to be wise men and women who build our houses on the rock. So, Father, we just ask that tonight you would open up our minds, our hearts, our eyes, and our ears. Lord, any filters that we've come in with, Lord, help us uh, suspend them, be open-handed with any ideas or preconceived notions about who you are or your limitations. Father, we just want to learn tonight. We just want to be open and receive, uh, Lord, your truth. So undo any lies, unseat any lies on the throne of our heart and replace them with your truth, God. Help us to be a people who know your word, a people with sure foundations, Lord. We just thank you for what you're doing in our midst and we say have your way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. But why don't we begin in lesson two. Jesus or Yeshua finding the rock. Why is it important that we reference Yeshua every once in a while instead of always saying Jesus? He's Jewish. He was raised as a Jew in a Hebrew culture, right? They thought like Jews. They spoke like Jews. They ate and fellowshiped and danced and celebrated like Jews. They focused on things that are different then we might focus on. It's good for us to remember that we're studying another culture, right? So key quote, in short, the story of Jesus is the truth about God. It is the word God translated into human terms and spelled out out in human words and acts. All that mortal men can take in about the nature of the unseen God is ours in Jesus Christ. Uh, That's from A.M. Hunter's The Gospel According to John. So we spoke about this a little bit last week, but I wanted to avoid getting too deep into the subject. Jesus, anytime that we perceive God in any way, we are seeing Jesus. This comes from Hebrews about Jesus being the radiance of God. So when people talk about What would God look like if we could see him? God is spirit and we cannot see him. So he is unseen. He is the invisible God. But who we do see is Jesus. And we're going to see this as we dig through this lesson. But when we're observing even people today being filled with the Holy Spirit and doing the things that Jesus did, who are they seeing? Jesus. But it's his Holy Spirit ministering through people today. We're going to study the Holy Spirit next week. But any time that you see people ministering the way that Jesus did, they are seeing Jesus through you. And so when Jesus came to the earth and they said, show us the Father. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And even to this day, when we represent Christ wherever we go, they are seeing Jesus who is showing them the Father. So we can see how they work in tandem. We talked about this last week. Did Jesus speak or act on his own? No. No. What did he do? He did what his father was doing. Right? What about the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit speak on his own? No, this is John 16. The Holy Spirit speaks not on his own, but what the Father gives him to say. So both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are doing the work of the Father. Do you see that? Let's go to, uh, oh, actually, we'll read it. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Someone read that real loud. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, or in many times and various ways. 
but in the last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Another way to put it, let's go to Ezekiel 1. Read out Ezekiel 1.28. Somebody. Okay, good. So we see Ezekiel is trying to describe what he was seeing when he saw a vision of the Lord. So if Ezekiel is seeing anything, is he seeing God? He is seeing Jesus. So what Ezekiel is describing, now we're talking about God's throne. We're talking about where the Lord sits. We're talking about what he's seeing in heaven. So we would say, oh, Ezekiel seeing a vision of God. No, he is seeing a vision of the Lord. He's describing the radiance just like Hebrews is discussing here that we just read through. So when he is able to perceive, he is not seeing God. He is observing the radiance. This is Jesus. Any way that we are able to perceive God, we are seeing the sun. Okay? When it says here, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he's not even saying that this is what it looked like. He's saying, I'm trying to describe to you something that was like what I saw, right? He's letting you know, hey, there is a great distance between what I'm able to put together with my words and what I'm actually observing right now. You see that? So a key question, who is Jesus and what is my relationship with him? Introduction. Much has been written and believed about Jesus. He's been called a great teacher, a holy man, a prophet, a liar, a deceiver, a wonder worker. But what should we believe? Was he just a great guy who people misinterpreted or was he truly the son of God? Let's see what the scriptures say. There are six major subjects that we want to briefly examine about Jesus. So his deity, that would be Jesus as God. His humanity, that is Jesus as man. His earthly ministry, which is what he did. His death, how, why, and when. His resurrection, the implications of his resurrection. Because he resurrected, what does that imply? And his return, the instructions about his return. So we're going to read through some of these things. And I like the way that it words this next part. It says, each one of these topics deserves more time and study than we can currently give. But as the Apostle John states in his gospel record concerning just the works of Jesus alone, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is from John 21, 25. And let's turn to John 20 just to read this next part. It says, the same can be said about each of these subjects. So someone read out 30 and 31, please. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, uh, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is what we would call a pashat, or just a very simple. We'll get to that way down the road. But it says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So why did John write this testimony? We believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing what? We may have life in his name. 
As with all the topics we will discuss, there are many scriptures that we could use to support our conclusions about Jesus. However, for the sake of time, we are only going to examine a few scriptures for each subject. So Jesus is deity. When Jesus came the first time, they had a hard time seeing him as what? God. God. And nowadays, we have a hard time seeing him as what? Human. Man, human, right? When he came the first time, they could see him in the flesh. It was hard for them to grasp that he was gone. But now all we know of him is God. And so we've distanced him, distanced him from the idea of his humanity. And so we don't see what he did in his life oftentimes as an example for us. We often think, well, that was Jesus. That's not me. I'm just a regular guy or gal. But Jesus' deity, it says the deity of Jesus Christ is the most important dividing factor between biblical Christianity and pseudo-Christian cults. Who Jesus is, is a central factor, is the central factor. If someone believes that Jesus is a way, a truth, or a life, and not the only way, but simply a way to the Father, then they have not found salvation through him because they must recognize that he is the only salvation. He's the only way to the Father, and there is no other way. He said, no one else comes to the Father except by me. We affirm and acknowledge that Jesus himself was and is God in the flesh based on the proclamation of the scriptures. Someone read out John 1, 1 and verse 14. It gives us the, the break of uh, 14. Someone read that right there for us. Now, because I love my son and want to encourage him, go ahead, Caleb, read that out loud. Amen. Yeah. Sounds so sweet. Someone read out Colossians 1, 19 and 2, 9, please. Now think about this. God speaking, these words that come out, it says, take on flesh and dwell among us so that we can perceive. But how interesting is it that the, the, the thing that comes out of God's mouth, takes on flesh, dies for us, is the sacrifice that God requires and now is the source of salvation to reconcile all of us back to himself. That's like outside our minds. We can't even understand that. It's too much for us to understand. And yet this is what it is to study who Jesus is. This is what it is to study the impossibility of who Jesus was. And it's so important that we recognize that Jesus was the word from the beginning and that he wasn't just born to Mary, but he was there from the beginning. If you'll take that mindset as you're reading through the Old Testament and look for Jesus's appearance, you will see him come on the scene throughout the Old Testament. Do you know that everywhere it's written the Lord's salvation in the Old Testament, that is the words Yeshua that his name is scattered all over the Old Testament so that literally as every Hebrew child growing up, reading through it, his name would be on their lips as they, as they spoke of the Lord's salvation. Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. And then he takes on flesh and dwells among us. So Jesus is the... Okay, Ian, say that again. Okay, he has been with God in the beginning and he is God. So this is a gimme. Jesus is fully or partially God. Fully. There is no separation. Good job, Josh. Every once in a while we need a softball, right? In addition to the scriptural evidence above, there are several titles used for God, which are also applied to Jesus in the New Testament. The most common being Lord, with a lowercase o-r-d, Kyrios in Greek. It is also very important to understand that in the culture of Jesus' day, certain phrases were substituted for God. This is really important, what we're about to read. 
Some examples of this in the Older Testament can be found in Isaiah 41, 4. Who wants to take that one? All right, Tim. Um, 43, 10. Who's got that one? All right, Veronica. Uh, 43, 13. Go ahead, Jackson. Uh, 43, 25. Stephen. 46, 4. All right, go ahead, Hannah. 48, 12. Grady. And then 51, 12. Go ahead, Zach. All right, let's start with 41, 4, please. The first and the last. Amen. Next one. Here are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. He's saying, I am he. I am he. He said it in the, in the first one and also in the second one. 4313. Okay, once again, I am he. 4325? You guys seeing this recurring? 4612. Fifty-one, twelve. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker? Hmm. Now quick, someone answer me very quickly. Who is this that's saying this? Luke, I am your father. Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Right? <laughs> now we can grasp that in one movie, I know that's, that line was actually never spoken for you Star Wars geeks in here. Luke, I am your father. We know that that's Darth Vader because we recognize that line, right? I want to tell you that the Jewish people recognized I am he. They knew that this was God from the scriptures that we just read. I am he. I am he. Over and over and over again, it is synonymous with the father. When you see I am he, it's talking about God. So it says, In each of these, God is speaking and says, I am He. So that phrase became associated with God. Mark 13, 5 through 6 says, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am He. And will deceive many. An example of the way Jesus often used this cultural expression for God to apply to himself is found in this passage. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am He. How many of you have ever heard that people say, or people say that uh, Jesus never called himself God? Right? You ever heard people say that? Anybody in here? Yeah. When Jesus says, I am he, there was no buts about it. He unequivocally was calling himself God in this moment. When you see him say things that don't make sense to us necessarily or don't seem to carry that same weight in our language, but they pick up stones and get ready to kill him, it's because the implications of what he was saying were that he was God. The reason they tried to, one of the reasons they tried to kill him was because what? Blasphemy. He called himself God. Uh, in short, Jesus said numerous times in a variety of ways that he was God. But many have failed to understand him simply because they have failed to understand the ways that Jewish men of Jesus' day spoke. For a powerful example of Jesus' divinity expressed in this manner, read John 18, 5 through 8, and also John 4, 25 through 26. Let's go there. Someone read out John 18, 5 through 8, and read it as if you're trying to communicate with someone across the room. 
restrained him and was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, he's saying, I am he. What's he saying? I am God. Keep going. Therefore, he, he again asked them, Whom do you see? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Amen. Now does that passage mean a little bit something more weighty? Yeah. I am he. This phrase, I am God. That's what he's saying. John 4, 25. Someone read that out. I who speak to you am he. Once again, he is saying, I am he. So the fill in the blank, saying I am he is the same as calling yourself God in the Jewish culture. Amen. Jesus' humanity. Uh, how many people remember the, the sermon that we did on uh, Jesus' humanity? Anybody remember that? I, I, I have to tell you that that for me was a huge shift in the way that I saw Jesus. Uh, uh, up until this point, I mean, even to this day, I'm still moving forward on that because the way that I saw Jesus for the longest time was that he was someone without a sin nature. So the way that he lived, that I couldn't copy that. I can't live the same way that Jesus did because he had a leg up. There was no sin nature, right? And he had this link between him and God that was way more than mine. And so what he was doing, I can't do. But the more that I began to look in Scripture and the more that I began to dig into the facts about the prophecies that even existed before he came on, there was over a hundred prophecies about specific things that he was supposed to do in his ministry. I mean, literal directions. Like what if it was, uh, let's say... Uh, Paul, there was a book written about you before you were even born. And it said, you're going to live in this place. You're going to work at this place. You're going to marry a woman with this name. You're going to have children. These are going to be their names. This is going to be the place where you go and hang out. You're going to have this many friends around you. It'd be a little bit different as you're reading a story that was literally written about you telling you all the things that you're going to be doing in your life. There are times when Jesus does things and he says, like, this is being done to fulfill righteousness. Or it says, so that scriptures would be fulfilled, he said this or did this. Think about that idea. The idea that Jesus was doing things with the fulfillment of scripture in mind. So as he begins to do something, he's thinking about the scripture that told him he would do it. When it says that he lived by faith, or it says that he learned from what he suffered. What I genuinely believe about Jesus, and this is part of what this class is. This is me sharing with you guys some of the, my thoughts on these things as well. What I believe about Jesus, I believe that he was like us in every way, except without sin. And that he lived by faith. And when it talks about, when it's, because even the phrase that says, he did nothing on his own, but he did only what he saw the Father doing, and he spoke what he heard the Father speaking. Do you know that that's an idiom that refers to the way a child apprentices with his father. So if Caleb was going to come and follow and do everything that I was doing, what we would say to Caleb is, Caleb, just do whatever you see your father doing and speak whatever you hear him saying. That would be what a child would do who was apprenticing with their father. And so even that phrase, I often thought before I found that out, Jesus had this like movie going on in his head that showed him everything that God was doing. And then he just literally like, this no now he's doing this and he's saying this so I'm you're you're my beloved right I'm you're, you're I'm the good shepherd he's just following exactly whatever God is telling him to do but it says that he lived by faith and if all these things were already his if he was really already thinking in that way and if he didn't need to rely or trust but he had this insight that we don't have or that we can't have access to then how was he living by faith? How was he trusting? Because that's what faith means. He's trusting. 
In fact, Philippians 2, if you ever want to see the breakdown of this, it says that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, right? Think about Jesus as a little child. Okay, Job 9, 32 through 35. I'm sorry, this is Jesus' humanity. My bad, guys. Uh, As much as Jesus was and is fully God, yeah, Uh, As much as Jesus was and is fully God, he was and is also fully human. Jesus was similar in some ways to other Jewish rabbis of the era. He was raised in a Jewish home by Jewish parents. He learned the Jewish scriptures and lived culturally as a Jew. He lived in obedience to the Jewish law. He communicated in Jewish ways, utilizing stories, metaphors, and parables from the Jewish culture. Jesus' humanity was expressed as a first century Jew. Here are a few of the scriptures that reveal his humanity. Uh, Philippians 2, 7 through 8. Someone read that out. Okay, so he made himself nothing. Luke 4, 2. Someone read that part out. So Jesus was hungry. John 4, 6. Jesus was tired as he was far as he was. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. So Jesus got tired. How about Luke 2, 52? Amen. So Jesus grew physically, intellectually, spiritually tired. That's what that tired means there. So he grew and he was tired and he was hungry. He learned. He made himself nothing. He was like us in every way and yet without sin. That's why he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he made himself like us in every way. This should be closing the gap between who Jesus was or who you've seen him as and who you see yourself capable of being. Does that make sense? Who you are capable of being. So I'm going to read Hebrews 5, 7, and then I'd like to hear you guys' answers. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Let me read the next part too. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the question, put into your own words some of the ways the scriptures declare Jesus to be a human being. It is important to note here, although he was a man, Jesus did not possess a corrupt nature as you and I do. He never sinned. As Hebrews 4.15 states, Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. William Barclay sums up Jesus' sinlessness in the following way. It means that in every decision and action of life he knew, accepted and acted on the will of God. He rendered to God a continuous and unique obedience. No one else in the history of the world before or after Jesus could make such a claim. And that is why he is the only one who can deliver us from our sins. So you, but Jesus never, not even once. So Job 9, 32 through 35, Jesus' earthly ministry. Let's turn to Job. All right, Job 9, 32 through 35. Someone read that out for me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him ter- terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Hmm. So Vera, you said you know God as mediator. Job was longing for a mediator, someone to put 
his hand on Job and on God and close the gap between the two of them. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So being both human and divine gives Jesus the unique ability to show us in a tangible way the nature of God himself. When you want to know how the Father feels about a topic or what God wants to happen in a particular situation, then you can see his will visibly displayed in Jesus' daily ministry on earth. Pastor Eric Stevens has often said, if the Bible is a book, then Jesus could be likened to the major motion picture shot in something more amazing than 3D. He is the living, breathing, walking Torah or word of God. So how does Jesus make the Father known to you? Someone tell me. Jesus summarized God's will in a prophetic announcement about his ministry made in Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. We find Jesus quoting this scripture in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth in Luke 4, 18 through 19. What does this passage state as Jesus' mission and ultimately God's will for him as well as God's desire for mankind? Let's go first to Isaiah 61. Come on. Amen. Amen. That's good. And now Jesus, to begin his ministry, let's go to Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. <laughs> he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of our Lord. Hallelujah. So A, let's read it together. To proclaim the good news to the poor. B, to proclaim liberty to the captives. C, and recovering sight to the blind. D, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. E, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. For three years, Jesus carried out this mission, ministering publicly to the lost sheep of Israel. In his first year, Jesus gathered a small group of disciples and gained a reputation for his teaching and healing ministries among the Jewish people. He grew in favor with the general public during his second year of ministry. Disciples were growing in great numbers and people's excitement about Jesus was at a peak in Israel. Finally, in Jesus' third year of public ministry, he faced increased opposition from both religious and political leaders, which were a minority, which were a minority with the majority of power. This eventually led to his arrest, torture, and crucifixion. Let's turn to John 11, 46. Lauren, would you read John 11, 46 through 53, please? Keep going.
Mm. So Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, and he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But here what's beautiful is, as John expounds upon the nation, says not only for that nation, which mine says for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So who was Jesus sent to? Israel. And he also was bringing to himself the scattered children of God. I think that's further elaboration on that answer from before, Zach. So since the life of Jesus teaches us about the Father, what does Jesus' mission teach us about the Father's priorities? Someone tell me. What are the Father's priorities as a result of what we just read? What are your thoughts on the Father's priorities? Okay, a note about Jesus' teachings and parables. Westerners find it difficult at times to understand many of Jesus' teachings. This is due primarily to a lack of understanding the first century, of the first century context and language in which Jesus taught. Jesus ate, lived, and communicated as a first century Jew. Consequently, we tend to either ignore or quickly read past much of what the synoptic gospels, i.e. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say. The best remedy for this is to purchase a good commentary or book or website about the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. See the further reading section below. So, yes or no, would it make a difference if Jesus had presented himself as a Norwegian, an African, or an American? Yes. yes. There are things that we do that don't make sense to the rest of the world. And vice versa. Is studying the culture of Jesus and thus Israel important? Please elaborate on your answer. Okay, Jesus' death. <clears throat> Much can be learned and taught about Jesus' torture and crucifixion. How are we doing? We all doing good? Yeah. All right. The bulk of Christian theology and faith centers on this fact. However, let's look at three scriptures that summarize the purposes or the purpose of Jesus' punishment and death. Maya, would you read that first? Isaiah 53, 5 through 6 and 12. Amen. Emily, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Amen. And Henry, Colossians 1, 21 through 22. Mm, read that last sentence again. But now. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That means if your hope is in Jesus in this room, you are holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Amen. Come on. This is good news. Amen. Whose iniquity was laid on Jesus? Tell me, why did Jesus do it? Peyton, what was your position when you were outside of relationship with Jesus?
Mm. Look at that verse right there. It says Colossians 1, 21. It says, once you were what? Alienated. So Peyton, welcome to the club. <laughs> we were all alienated from God. We all were steeped in sin. We were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But thanks be to God, he's brought us close. Simply put, these scriptures state that we deserved death and alienation from God, but he wanted us to be reconciled to himself. So God gave us his son, Jesus, to take the penalty of death for us. And this Jesus did willingly. John 10, 11, let's go there. And 17 and 18. Natalie Whalen, will you read John 10, 11, and 17 through 18, please? Amen. And 17 and 18? Yes, ma'am. However, it wasn't enough for Jesus to carry our sins with him to the grave. He had to conquer death completely so that it would no longer have power over humanity. Jesus' resurrection. Let's go to Hebrews 7. Alyssa, will you read out 15 through 19, please? Amen. Jesus' resurrection is one of the most um, attested and contested facts in history. Perhaps that is because our hope for freedom from death, i.e. our hope for everlasting life, hinges on Jesus' victory over death through his resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul confirms this. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. The good news is that the scriptures proclaim and our testimonies confirm that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he is alive today, seated at God's right hand. What's more is that the Bible tells us that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we who trust in him will also be raised from the dead and receive everlasting life with him. Let's look at a few scriptures that speak to this promise. Brad, will you read John eleven twenty five, please? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. Amen. <laughs> Summer, read Romans eight eleven, please. Amen. And Sharon, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, please. Yes. Trust grounded obedience to Jesus ensures the believer that they will be resurrected. Amen. And receive eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, 42, Acts 4, 2, 24, 14 through 15. Marsha, will you take 1 Corinthians 15, 42, please? Uh, Brandon, will you take Acts 4, 2, please? And Victoria, will you take Acts 24, 14 through 15, please? Go ahead with 1 Corinthians 15.
Acts 4.2. Mm. And 24. Amen. What was Paul's hope in? The resurrection. That's what he said his hope was in. Surprised? Paul said his hope is in the resurrection. He said, if Christ did not raise from the dead, then we are to be pitied above all men. Because he did, then if he wasn't able to raise from the dead, then that would mean that there is an enemy greater than Jesus. But because death is our greatest enemy and the final enemy to be put down and Jesus conquered death, then that means that there is no enemy that Jesus did not conquer or cannot conquer. Jesus' return. In Acts 1, Luke tells us the story of Jesus' ascension into heaven after his resurrection. The apostles are all standing around listening to Jesus' final speech on earth when suddenly he's taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Acts 1.9 But in the midst of their curiosity, two angels appear to them and give them a message. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Acts 1.11 this is the promise that we have, that Jesus will return as he said he would. What chapter do we go to anytime someone asks us to describe Jesus' return? We're learning, yes. His departure was visible, and so his return must be visible. visible. Revelation 1.7, let's read that. Someone read that first line as if you're singing a song. Some brave soul, come on. Amen. We'll call that spoken word. Amen. He's coming on the clouds. He's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. <laughs> Says there are many theories about the return of Jesus Christ, even within evangelical Christianity. <gasps> Bible scholars and pastors argue over timing and events, not us. Our purpose is not to debate which, if any, of these particular teachings is correct. The most important fact to understand is that Jesus, the promised Messiah, will return to Israel as king to fully establish the kingdom of God over all the earth. In the meantime, this kingdom is a present reality for those of us who currently submit to the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Jesus, his apostles and the early believers, we should proclaim the reality of God's kingdom to the lost so that they too can enjoy the blessings of his kingdom, both in this age and in the age to come. Amen. Who hasn't read or spoken out tonight? Raise your hand. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Matt, take Mark 1.15. Who else? Take Acts 12, take uh, Acts 28, 31, and then Caleb, take Hebrews 12, 28, and then Mary Lynn, take James 2, 5, please. Let's hit some rapid fire. Go for it, Matt. Booyah. Is that Josie? At Acts 8? Jesse. Great. 2831? Brian, is that you? Yep. 
boldness and without hindrance. 1228. Kingdom that cannot be shaken. James 2 5. Mm. Amen. I'm glad that he chooses the poor and the foolish things to confound the wise. I get to be included. Praise God. <laughs> Our prayer should be, Father, your kingdom, your will be done on as it is in heaven. There we have it. Did you say Mars? It will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Doesn't it feel like your heart is like taking a shower? Like it's just like it's clean. It's good to be studying these basic, elementary, foundational things. It's good to revisit these things. And we're building week to week. Next week, what are we studying? Humanity. Humanity. Because y'all ain't ready for the Holy Spirit yet. They ain't ready. No, y'all are ready. Y'all are ready. Homework. Go back to the beginning of the lesson. The six major subjects. We're going to get one more verse, just like last week, on each of those subjects. And now a part of everyone's assignment is to ask someone what their thoughts are on Jesus. Not extra credit. <laughs> extra credit is going to be to watch that Jesus is Humanity sermon. Discipleship Helps is a creation of the One Association of Churches. To find out more about the One Association, you can visit one-association.org.